All right. So, can we all, uh, could we all stand together? I am so excited that you are here tonight. And I want to start by singing an old chorus. It's very simple. So if you do not know this chorus, which most of you are not going to know it, please pick up on the second verse. (laughs) If you you know it, please join me during the first verse. (laughs) It goes like this. Soon and very soon we are going to see the king. Soon and very soon we are going to see the king. Soon and very soon we are going to see the king. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see the king. No more parting there. No more parting there. We are going to see the king. No more parting there. We are going to see the king. No more parting there. We are going to see the king. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We're going to see the king. No more crying. No more crying there. We are going to see the king. No more crying there. We are going to see the king. No more crying there. We are going to see the king. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We're going to see the king. One more verse, no more dying. No more dying there. We are going to see the king. No more dying there. We are going to see the king. No more dying there. We are going to see the King. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We're going to see the King. I want to pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful gathering tonight. Lord, we are interested in you. We are interested in your Word. Lord, we are so grateful that there are so many things that are absolutely clear in the Word of God that we unite around, we agree on, and they are established truths. But Lord, we're also interested in all these things that are obscure in Scripture, where there are many different ways of looking at it and thinking about it and And Lord, you said it was the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to seek it out, to search it out. Lord, you invite us to search after truth that seems hidden. And Lord, we just pray tonight, Lord, there's only one teacher, and that's the Holy Spirit. Would you you be in this place, and would you, um, Lord, let there be a spirit of unity even if we end up not agreeing on specifics at the end. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for it.
In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we all know that you can use Scripture out of its context. It turns out my favorite Scripture out of context is about the rapture. And it was on the wall of a nursery. It's the nursery downstairs, and it's 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and here's what it says. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. (laughs) So I need to start tonight by sharing a little of my journey um, of where I have been on the end times. I began uh, in a... I I believed in a pre-tribulation rapture. I mean, I believed it. That's what my teachers taught. That's what we learned. I loved it. I did my my master's thesis on the pre-tribulational rapture. And and what that simply means in in layman's terms is that the trouble described in Matthew 24 is going to be in the future, And before any of that trouble, there is going to be a secret rapture. Not the one where Jesus is like lightning, but a secret rapture. You will only know it by who's gone. That Jesus, you won't see him. They'll just, all of a sudden, the Left Behind movies were made on this. They're just gone. And, And you know Jesus came by who is not on the earth anymore. And then that leads to a time of the great tribulation period, the great seven-year tribulation period, and then what's described in Matthew 24, after this distress, that's when Jesus comes with lightning, and that is actually not the rapture there, it's his return to the earth. And, and so I believed that, I taught that for several years. Then I read a book called The Sign, by a guy named Robert Van Campen. And he said some things in there. He said, as far as those the seven seals, because we believed the seven seals were all part of the wrath of God. They were all part of the day of the Lord. So the rapture had to be before the day of the Lord. So we were gone. And then the seven seals followed by the seven trumpets, followed by the seven bowls. And what he said is, no. No, the seals on a, on, a, on a Jewish legal document were not part of the actual document. They are not part of the day of the Lord. Seals were on the outside of a document and they represented conditions that needed to be met before you could open a legal document. So if there were three seals, three things had to be met before you could even open the document. So the seals were not part of the day of the Lord. They are conditions that have to be met before the day of the Lord. And then he said, uh, and the sixth seal is so clearly the rapture. It is, you do Matthew 24, what Matthew 24 says and what it says in the sixth seal, and these are 
the same event. And he was saying, no, we're not here for God's wrath, but we are here for Antichrist's wrath. The first seal is the releasing of the Antichrist. And, and so we're here for that. And we're going to go through a horrible time. We're going to be saved from God's wrath, but we're going to go through the wrath of Antichrist. So anybody that's been around here knows I've taught that, that we are we're going through it, man. We, we need to raise up people that are ready to be killed for Jesus. We're going to, and it says they're going to be killed by the guillotine uh, under the Antichrist. We're not going to take the mark. We're going to get killed. And I remember doing this here and about the end times, and we were doing the question and answer time, and God bless Marianne Vig. She raised her hand. And I said, what, what's going on, Marianne? And she said, she said, I want to be one of the first in line to be killed. He, she said, I want my head cut off when that, that blade is still sharp. <laughs> I just want to make quick work, quick work of it. And uh, and I, I, just, I just changed my position wholesale because it, it, it made... Matthew 24, I could just read it and that it was there. You didn't have to know a whole bunch of things. To get to a pre-trip position, I had to explain so many things that people didn't even know what are you talking about. And it just was very complicated to be pre-trip because you had to explain this secret, this secret coming. Um, so I changed. Uh, it was the pre-wrath position. And then this year, early this year, probably started last year actually I started studying what actually happened in history and I had known I had known from the very beginning that the whole idea of this generation will not pass away I I knew that that word generation really means generation and uh, I, you have to use it as race if you're going to try to make it be both the, the first century and the coming. And so I had changed that word. And, um, and then we have a whole bunch of other people that are believing it's the last generation. And that it is the word generation, but it's that last generation that's going to look at all these signs. And I started studying history. And I'm like, oh, oh, my. Oh, my. So much of this has already happened and uh, so I, if you had to put a name on my present position it, I, I call it the preterist preterist means it all happened but I'm, I'm not a preterist because I don't think it all happened to be a true preterist you have to believe Jesus already came back he came back when he judged Jerusalem and I, it, just a bunch of stuff that I could never believe anyway so I'm a preterist futurist if you have to put a name on the position and it revolves around um, this. And here's, here's point one for tonight. That there are two rescue and judgment events described in Matthew 24. And to get the full, the full explanation of this, you need to listen to this morning's message if you weren't there. But simply this. Jesus in Matthew 24 they are asking him two questions. One is about the destruction of the temple and one about the sign of his coming back. And that's why Matthew 24 is so confusing because you don't know which question he's answering. 
The way to sort it out is to go to Mark 13 and Luke 21, where it's much cleaner, because they only ask one question. They say, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And that's the only question they ask, and he gives the first rescue and judgment event that is in our future. And he says, let me tell you when the temple is going to be destroyed and how you can be rescued from that time. And he lays out everything that's going to happen in that generation. He gives them every sign that they can follow, that they can pay attention to. And the final sign is the abomination of desolation set up in the holy place. When you, when you see this, you need to flee Jerusalem. You need to get out because the time of judgment is coming. The time of God's wrath, God's promised wrath on the Jews for rejecting Messiah is going to come and you need to do something. You need to flee. You need to get out of Jerusalem. You need to flee to the mountains. And so you keep your eyes open for these signs. You follow these signs because this is going to happen. And Jesus looks his disciples in the eyes, probably with fire in his eyes. And he says, listen, this generation will not pass away till all these things happen. Uh, this is not sometime down there. This is your lifetime. This is going to happen. You're going to have to be watching. And when this sign, the abomination of desolation appears, you are going to have to physically flee. And he gives a bunch of practical things about praying that it's not winter and it's going to be harder for pregnant women and those nursing. And, it's, and you're going to have to get out of Jerusalem and you're going to have to get out quickly and you need to be ready to go and take everyone with you. In Matthew 24, he answers, um, there are two questions asked, and then he he answers both questions. The, the, The other rescue and judgment event is very different than the first one. This one, he says, I don't know the day or the hour. First one I know, second one, I don't know when it's going to be. But here's what I know about it. It is going to be unexpected. There are going to be no signs pointing to it. In fact, it will come at a time that you don't think it will. And this one, you don't have to do something because you don't leave. You will be taken. You are going to be taken. And so what you need to do is be ready. You need to be ready 24-7 all the time because you do not know when this is going to happen. And the, the second rescue, the first one is localized. It's on the Jewish people. Second one is worldwide. It will be like Noah's flood. It will be a, a worldwide judgment that will end in a new beginning. And so that's our two rescue and judgment events. So I want to talk secondly about Daniel 70th 7. Here's what happens. Children of Israel have been in captivity for 70 years. In Babylon, Daniel is praying an angel. The angel Gabriel appears to him and he lays out the end times. He says, Daniel, there's, there's 77s remaining for 
the Jewish people, after that time, everything is going to be fulfilled that has been promised to the Jews. And he says, from the decree to rebuild the city, this is all in Daniel 9, there are going to be seven sevens followed by 62 sevens. During the seven sevens, the city is going to be rebuilt. That's going to be followed by 62 sevens. After the 62nd seven, Messiah is going to be cut off. And he's, he gives a number of things that we're going to read here in a second. Here's all I want to say uh, before we read Daniel 9, 26 and 27. The decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem... We have that. That was made in 444 BC. Nehemiah 2.1 says it was in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. He began his reign or he numbered his reign from uh, 464. He began counting years of his reign. So in the 20th year, in the month of Nisan, he made a decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So the clock started. It took 49 years. To, the wall went up very quickly, but to, to redo the streets and the homes and the whole thing, it took 49 years. It was during a time of trouble. You go 62 sevens on top of those seven sevens, and it's a little tricky because you can't use solar years because uh, Israel was on lunar years, which is only 360 days in a year. So you've got to convert to get to years and then convert back over to get to our time. The 69, six, seven sevens followed by 62 sevens, which is uh, 483 years of lunar years. If you translate it back to the solar calendar, it ends the spring of 33 AD. And then it says this. This is Daniel chapter nine. He says, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. The end of the city and the sanctuary will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He, this coming ruler, will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, or on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. The reason why this is all very important is because Jesus said this in Matthew 24. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then let those in Judea flee. So the abomination of desolation is going to be this sign. We talked about it this morning, so I'm not going to prolong that. But I want to say this about it. For those of you who've studied prophecy, studied history, it's very confusing in Daniel. Because Daniel has two abomination of desolations. One, which is in Daniel 11, verse 31, is about Greece. 
It's, it's all of Daniel 11 is about Persia and Greece. Daniel 8 is also about Persia and Greece. It talks about an abomination that's going to be set up. It's going to be a future Greek ruler of Greece. He's going to be an evil man. He's going to be clever. He's going to be, an, and people use all these verses about the coming Antichrist, and maybe it's a foreshadowing of him, but it, it's about Greece. And that abomination of desolation happened in 168 B.C., before Christ, the, the king was named Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God in the flesh. He had coins made. It, he had problems. And he attacked, he attacked Jerusalem. He, the, the, the sacrifices in the temple ceased. He set up a, a Zeus, a statue of Zeus, and sacrificed a pig to it, which was just an abomination of desolation. And it said... Uh, Daniel 8 says it was, it's going to be 2,300 days that there will not be any sacrifices. And then the sacrifices will be restored. And that all happened under the Maccabees. The Maccabees were the priests, and they led a war against them. They kicked back, and they were heroes in Israel. So one of the abominations of desolation already happened. You can't just lump them together. But Jesus says there's, there's a future one coming. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, this can only be the Daniel 9 abomination of desolation that is during Daniel's 70th seven. 69 sevens, Jesus dies after the 69 sevens and before the 70th seven. So there's a little gap here. And Jesus says, both in Mark and Luke, that the 70th seven is going to happen in their generation. This morning, I talked a little bit about what happened. 66 AD, the Jews rebel against Nero, who is the emperor. He, he commands a war on the Jews. He empowers his general Vespasian to use all means to put down this rebellion. The war lasts for a total of seven years. It goes from 66 to 73. It is Daniel's 70th seven. At exactly the halfway point, three and a half years, sacrifices cease in the temple because Titus, on Vespasian's behalf, destroys the temple. While the temple is burning, he, they, Josephus says they, they make sacrifices to the Roman ensign, which was the, the Roman eagle with an image of the emperor, which would be Vespasian at the time. And they, would, they treated it as being divine. The war lasted seven years. At exactly the halfway point, sacrifices ceased in the temple. But what it says is, he, this coming ruler, and by this time, Vespasian, he starts out as the general, and, but in 69 AD, there's four emperors, and he's the last one standing, so Vespasian is now the emperor, he is the ruler, and it says that he makes a covenant with many, 417. And I, I went back and forth as to what this covenant was until I read Josephus, and here's what it says about Vespasian's war. It says that the first place that he went was Galilee, where he took some of its cities by treaties and on terms. That's from Josephus, the Jewish War, Preface 8. 
He goes on to tell us that Zephorus, the largest city of Galilee, received Vespasian, the Roman general, very kindly and readily promised that they would assist him. So as he pursues this war, at the beginning of the war, he makes a covenant or an agreement with many of the Jews. Um, that is part of this. So I want to read to you. Josephus records that over that seven-year span, the Jews died, 1.1 million Jews died, uh, many through crucifixion that tried to escape, many through famine and starvation. They were all trapped there from the Passover all the way to the middle, middle of August. And then finally, many died in suicide when, he, when Titus finally broke into Masada in 73 AD. They, had, they were all dead by suicide. The whole thing, seven years. Here's Daniel 9.27, in my opinion, fulfilled. The coming ruler, Vespasian, made a covenant or treaty with many, the Galilean Jews, guaranteeing their protection during the war, which ended up lasting seven years, 66 to 73 AD, or 1-7. At the three-and-a-half-year point, the temple was destroyed, so sacrifices ceased. At that same time, an abomination, parentheses, a Roman ensign declaring Caesar's divinity, of desolation, the army itself fought under the ensign and desolated everything in its path, was placed on the wing of the temple, followed by a war that continued three and a half more years. All this was completed 40 years from when Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until all these things happen. So that's kind of a review of this morning, and you kind of get a feel of where I'm going. A lot of this has already been fulfilled. Point three, the little horn of Daniel 7. The reason why tonight is called the puzzle of the end times is because there's a lot of pieces. And if you're making a puzzle, all the pieces have to fit in the puzzle. You can't have a puzzle and have half the pieces still out. That's illegal. And, and so whatever, whatever position you've got, you can't just have, oh, we have this piece left over. Oh, well. No, no, no. There has to be a place for every piece, which is why oftentimes people don't have an end times position because the pieces are very confusing. Well, this is one of the pieces. Daniel 7, here we go. It's, this, it's the first year of King Belshazzar, so it's still during the Babylonian uh, captivity. And Daniel has a dream, and here's, here's what he says. Daniel 7, 3 through 8. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. It's, this is all a clear reference to ne what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The, bird, the, be, the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. 
This is, this is Greece. Alexander the Great moved very, very quickly. He died very young. His four generals became the four kings, the four, the four uh, heads of it, and that's the, the Greece empire. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there was before me another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. So Daniel receives this during the, there's four beasts coming. One is Babylon, which he's currently in. Then we've got the bear on one side. That's the Persia media kingdom, followed by Greece, the four wings, the four heads, followed by what can only be Rome. And scholars all, almost completely agree that the fourth beast is Rome. So then Daniel 7, 19 through 24, and we'll probably have this one. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three, three kings. He will change the set laws and speak blasphemies. So the ten horns on the, tor- the, the, the fourth beast are kings that will arise, and the, the little horn is an eleventh that will arise after them. So these are, and this is really important, successive kings. These are not... Concurrent. They're not all ruling at the same time. It's one after another. There's ten horns, and then there's a little horn that is going to take out three of the horns. He is going to cause sacrifice to cease. He's going to oppress the Roman people, and he's going to blaspheme. Okay, so we, so far so good. Who, who, are, who are these 10 kings? And how do, you, how do you start counting kings of the Roman Empire? For one thing, none of them were called kings. Where does it start? How, how do you start counting Roman emperors? At this time, there's already been 40 or 50 uh, by, by the time of uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. So where do you start counting Well, here's one logical place. Judah was not part of the Roman Empire until 63 BC. A guy named Pompey, he was general at the time, took uh, Jerusalem, desecrated the temple, 
and officially made it part of the Roman Empire. It started out as a client kingdom. It eventually became under the direct supervision, but it, it joined the Roman Empire in 63 BC under a guy named Pompey. His title was not king or emperor. It was the sole, he was called the sole consul. Following him, he's one, so following him was Julius Caesar, that's two. Following him was a guy named Octavian. He was the nephew of Julius Caesar. He, we know him as Augustus, that, which is actually a title, not a name. After him came Tiberius. He was the one that was ruling when Jesus' ministry was. Following him was Caligula is number five, Claudius six, Nero was number seven, And then in one year, Nero commits suicide in 68, in 68 AD. And in one year, 69, there are three consecutive emperors. The first one is a guy named Galba, becomes the emperor, war keeps going, a guy replaces him named Ortho, war keeps going, another guy replaces him named Vitellius. And finally, by the end of 69 AD, Vespasian conquers them all. There are 10 emperors. Vespasian is the 11th. He starts out as a little horn. He does not start out as as a king. He starts out as the general. He puts down three, becomes the emperor. Then... He runs this war against the Jews. He oppresses the holy people. Halfway through, he causes sacrifice to cease. I'm just going to read this paragraph. The 11th ruler after Judea uh, became part of the Roman Empire was Vespasian. He, He arose after the 10th. Three were uprooted before him. He was different than the others because he was from a different family line. He was from the family line of Flavius. He was not in Julius Caesar's line like the Caesars before him. He started out as a general, little horn, before becoming king. He finished the war. Nero put him in charge of against the Jews through his son Titus and destroyed the temple, changing Jewish law. law. He blasphemed God by having his image on the Roman temple on the Roman ensign that was sacrificed to on the wing of the temple that outlined uh, the, the wing of that wall that outlines the temple after, its, after the temple's destruction. I believe that Daniel 7 was partially fulfilled through Vespasian. I believe he was the 11th uh, the little horn that came up, the 11th ruler, the 10 rulers before him, three were put down before him. He stopped sacrifice. It's, it's all there. It's all in the history. Uh, thank you for this. All right. Um, but there are problems with this. And I'm going to give you the two problems for those who study the end times and know about the end times and know about history, there are two problems. Here's the, here's the two problems. Number one, uh, I've read Roman history. Vespasian wasn't that bad. Nero, horrible. Domitian, who is one of Vespasian's sons, horrible. 
But Vespasian, man, I've, I've read about him and he seems like one of the good Roman emperors. He's not that bad. Hmm. Dig a little deeper. I'm going to just read uh, what Wikipedia said about Vespasian's propaganda campaign. Here's what it says. Construction projects bore inscriptions praising Vespasian and condemning previous emperors. Vespasian approved histories written under his reign, ensuring biases against him were removed. He gave financial rewards to writers. Those who spoke against Vespasian were punished. A number of Stoic philosophers were accused of corrupting students with inappropriate teachings and were expelled from Rome. One pro-Republic philosopher was executed for his teachings. There are three writers in this period that we know, that we get all of our information from. Josephus, who was a Jew, but he became his adopted son. He, he literally changed his name to Flavius Josephus because he became one of Vespasian's adopted sons. Tacitus and Suetonius, the two other writers, were both on his payroll. Guys, I just don't think you can trust history written by a guy who is ordering only the accounts that he approves, that he is hired to have done, and if you don't write the way he wants you to write, you are expelled from Rome or you are killed. I don't think you can trust everything that history says. Any propaganda machine is going to say and put out stuff that you want to hear. This is what North, North Korea does right now to its own people. That's, this is what the, the communist Stalin and Lenin, that was all about propaganda. When somebody's got a strong propaganda machine running, you know they're hiding something. So I will agree with you that history has been merciful to Vespasian, but that doesn't mean he was a good guy. The second problem is in Daniel 7, if indeed Vespasian is the beast, the beast is destroyed at the second coming, at the Son of Man. When the Son of Man comes, he's destroyed by fire. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when Paul is talking about the man of sin who is going to declare himself in the temple to be God, that same man of sin is eventually destroyed at the second coming of Jesus by fire. In Revelation, the beast is destroyed once again at Christ's second coming. All of that did not happen to Vespasian, so in what manner can we say he was the beast and the fulfillment of Daniel 7? I mean, this, this is a problem. Or is it possible that the beast, the Antichrist, appears twice, just like Jesus did? Is it possible the beast appears twice? We're moving on to point five, the two comings of the beast. Revelation 17, 8. John says, the beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. 
to part of interpreting Revelation, you have to start out by determining when the Apostle John wrote. Um, we'll talk about this later. Some preterists try to say he was writing during Nero, and that's why it's all fulfilled during Nero. But really, almost all of the fathers agree that he wrote much later. He wrote during Domitian. He wrote in about 95 AD. So John is the only New Testament writer that has already seen all of the prophecies of Jesus fulfilled. He is... the. The temple's already destroyed. Vespasian has already appeared. Uh, Everything that got devastated got devastated. John is writing 20 years after that. And and, uh, Vespasian goes on. He's not destroyed by the beast. Vespasian's reign goes, when he comes in 69 AD, he reigns for 10 years till 79 AD. The beast didn't destroy him. John's looking back on this. And John is seeing something in the future. And he says, The beast which you saw, this is the angel speaking to John, once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. So we are assured that the beast has already appeared once. Now he is not, and by saying not does not mean that he doesn't exist. It means he's not working right now. He is locked up right now. He is not active right now. He's locked up, but he is going to be released from the abyss, and he's going to be active again. So let me give you John's definition of the beast. The beast is not just a man. He's a demonic personage. The fact that he comes out of the abyss was established earlier in Revelation where he is again called the beast that comes up from the abyss. So then we have the question about this phrase, up from the abyss. Does up from the abyss, does it mean only that he is inspired by hell or does it mean he literally comes out of a place called the abyss? Is there an actual demonic personage that is in an actual place called the abyss? In Revelation 9, 2, it says an angel opens the abyss and demonic locusts come out of it and torment those on the earth. So here's the question. Is it possible that the beast who inspired Vespasian in the past has been locked up in a real place called the abyss since that time until he reappears in the end times? Is there any precedent of a demonic person ever appearing than for a season being locked in the abyss before reappearing in the timing of God. As a matter of fact, there is. Satan himself now has freedom to deceive mankind, but one day will be locked in the abyss when Jesus comes and will be restricted there for a thousand years only to be released again at the end of that time to fulfill God's purpose. I'll just read it right to you from Revelation 20, verse 3. He, speaking of an angel, threw him, speaking of Satan, into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So in a similar way, it seems that during the future rescue and judgment coming to this planet, the beast which has already appeared through Vespasian will come up again from the abyss and be allowed to blaspheme God and persecute the saints. 
So how come no one has talked about the beast coming twice? Well, for preterists, and all, all I mean when I say preterists, preterists mean that all of the end time stuff, including all the book of Revelation, has already happened. It all happened in the first century. Jesus will come again, but all of that stuff was all imagery, and it was all speaking of stuff that was going on that was contemporary to that time. The, the difficulty of the preterists are twofold. One, you have to say that John wrote during Nero's reign. Um, because Nero was a really bad guy, and he was called the beast, and, and if, you, if you fudge his name around a little, you can get to 666, because in, in, in Greek, letters are also numbers, and Hebrew is the same thing, and you can make Nero's, if you change his name around just a little, you can make it come to 666, and so preterists are, are very excited about Nero being, that, that John wrote during Nero's reign, he was in prison during Nero's reign, um, and I tried to believe that. I, I tried. I, I, I got in there. I'm, I'm with them. I'm like, and then you just read enough about what the early father said, and it's just, he didn't write during Nero's reign. I'm sorry. He wrote during Domitian's. He wrote years after. And the only reason you have him writing there is because you want him to write there. There's a second problem with the preterist view, and that is this position that Jesus has already come back. And I, I, I just can't that Jesus came in judgment, he came in the sky, and da-da-da-da-da. You know what? I'll never believe that. Jesus is still coming. Somebody say amen. Amen. Okay. So futurists say this to the preterists, no, no, it's all happening in the future. None of this could have happened because all of it hasn't happened. The beast is going to be destroyed at the second coming. Therefore, the beast could not have already been here. So everything that Jesus talks about has to be the future. The abomination of desolation has to be the future because everything that's supposed to happen with the beast and all the signs and wonders he's going to do have not happened. And therefore, it all has to be in the future. And... uh, And of course, to this point, I've been a futurist for this very reason. So, let's talk about number number six, the first six seals of Revelation. If this is all we had about end times, then I would believe these are future. I have believed these are future to this point. What we have in Revelation 5 is we have this mourning, this weeping of John because there's no one worthy to break the seals. The document called the Day of the Lord, which is the very future of this planet, can't be opened because there's no one worthy to break the seals. These things have to happen before the Day of the Lord can come and the kingdom of God can come to earth and there's no one worthy. And the angel says, don't cry, there's someone worthy. The lamb who was slain, he is worthy to break the seals. And you see some of the worship of heaven. And, and then in, in, in Revelation 6, 1, it says that Jesus breaks seal number one. And you see a, a rider on a white horse that has an, a bow in his hand, and he is giving the ability to conquer. 
And then you have this seal number two, wars and rumors of war, and seal three, which is plagues and earthquakes, and plague, uh, the, the fourth rider is the death that is accumulated from the second two seals, and then the fifth seal's broken, and we see persecution, and people dying because of their faith, and the martyrs that are under the altar crying out, how long? And if this is all we had was Revelation 6, I would say the whole thing is future. But it's not all we have on the end times. And the rule of interpreting Scripture is you don't let the obscure interpret that which is clear. You do it the other way around. You find out if there's something clear and you go with the clear thing and you let the clear thing interpret the obscure thing. So here's what I believe about the first five seals. I believe Jesus, the lamb, has already opened them. Why do I believe that? Because he said in his generation, and we'll just go seal by seal, the first seal, the, the, the imitation Christ, here's what Jesus said was going to happen in their generation. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Jesus said, part of this time is I'm allowing deception. I'm allowing false Christs. I'm allowing many people are going to say they're Christs. Jerome, one of the early church fathers, says at the time of the Jewish captivity, many, uh, the, the, the time when they were, were captive in, uh, when Titus brought the army around, many Jewish elders claimed to be the Christ. There were so many, in fact, that there were three distinct camps of them when the Romans besieged Jerusalem. False Christs were released at the same time that the gospel was being preached. And more and more and more, so much so that by 70 AD, the reason why they stayed was because there were three camps of people that said they were the Messiah, follow me, this is the time of God's deliverance of Judea, and, and there were three specific groups and followers, and all were believing, and all believed that their guy was the guy, and um, the first seal was opened, and it's still open. Who was the guy on the white horse? Could very well be the future Antichrist, but it's been opened for 2,000 years. The second seal of Revelation 6 is wars. <clears throat> Here's what Jesus said. After he said there's going to be false Christ, he said, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation. Matthew 24, 6 and 7. So after a long time of peace under Augustus, war started breaking out in the Roman Empire. There was, um, my oh my, like birth pains. By, by 70 AD, there were, there were four wars in just the, the year before, 69 AD. W wars for Ortho, war, wars, Galva leads his, Vitalius leads his, and then finally Vespasian conquers them all, in addition to the war that was happening against the Jewish people. Wars and rumors of war. 
were open in the first century. They were part of this period. And you probably noticed that that seal is still open today. The third seal um, released another horse and it brought famine. Jesus said, after he said there's going to be false Christ, there's going to be wars and rumors of war, then he says in Matthew 24, 7, in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. In the reign of Claudius, there was a great famine all over the world, Acts eleven twenty eight. The famine within Jerusalem, when the siege set and led to cannibalism within the walls during those four months. There were earthquakes. Pompeii in 63 A.D., Writers of the period tells us, tell us of earthquakes in Colossae, Smyrna, Miletus, Samsos, Laodicea, Crete, Rome, and Judea. Earthquakes, plagues, natural disasters that lead to famine are still part of our present world. The, the seal is open. It's still happening 2,000 years later. The fourth seal, the pale horse, which was the accumulated deaths from the second and third seal. I've already told you that Josephus said over a million Jews were killed during the seven-year period. Death by plague. One of the plagues today, one of the greatest plagues today is cancer. How many lives has cancer taken? Death by war, death by natural disaster. Um, A fourth of humanity would die by plagues. Thanks, buddy. The life of the gospel has been ordained by God to be preached during a time of death in this world. There's two kingdoms here at the same time. There's darkness and there's light. This is how God arranged it. The fifth seal is the martyrdom of those who were killed. And it says in Revelation 6, because of the word of God and because of the testimony they maintained. So here's what Jesus says right after he talks about false Christ and then wars, and then plagues and famines that lead to death, he says, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. The persecution began in synagogues. The Jews were persecuting them. Agrippa, we've got the the death of Stephen, the stoning of Stephen while Saul was there. We got the death of James under Agrippa. And then um, 64 AD hit. Nero burned Rome and then he needed somebody to blame so he blamed the Christians and an empire wide persecution was released on the Christians lasted for three and a half years until Nero's death he's the one that killed Peter he's the one that killed Paul this was going throughout exactly as Jesus said John is writing during Domitian, during a time where people are being martyred under Domitian's rule. He writes to them as one who is a fellow partaker, quote, in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. He is on the island. The reason why they were killed, the martyrs, was because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Do you know what John says why he's on the island? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
Why is he writing this book? Because the Lord's coming is very soon. It's soon. He starts off by saying he's coming soon. And then he ends with saying he's coming very soon. I believe John is writing while the fifth seal has already been opened. The first five seals are opened. There's only one thing that's left to be fulfilled. And that's the coming of the Lord. It's the sixth seal. Is there any question that the fifth seal is already open today? Do you know how many people have died since the early church? This is, this is the, uh, the martyrs, the magazine on the martyrs that keep track of that stuff. 70 million people is a conservative evidence of how many people have died for their faith since the early church. And recently, there's probably been as many in the last 10 years than there were in the, the thousand years before that. This is happening worldwide right now. I believe John is writing with five of the, five of the seven seals already open. After the fifth seal has been opened, John sees those who have been martyred and hears their question, how much longer? There has been a delay and they are waiting for the coming day of the Lord to avenge their deaths. The answer, a little while longer until all those who will be killed like you is complete. The second coming is imminent but delayed. Do you know, do you know that right after Jesus said that and following these things, and Matthew says immediately following these things, the sign, my sign will appear in the sky. It is the next event that is going to happen on God's calendar is the rapture. The, the, after the distress of those days, that's when the rapture is going to come. It is the next event. You need to be ready. You need to be ready. You need to be ready. And then he proceeds to give three straight parables, Matthew 24 and 25. He's already said he doesn't know the day or the hour, but he does know one thing. It's going to be delayed. Three times in all three parables, it says that he was a long time in coming. He was a long time in coming. There was a delay before he came back. And that's what led to complacency, entitlement, abuse. It's, it led to sluggishness. There was a delay. There was going to be a delay in the bridegroom returning. And they are still experiencing. They're waiting for his coming right then. John's, John's like, it's imminent. It's going to happen. It's going to happen soon. And they're like, how much longer? Just a little longer. So five seals are already opened. And then Jesus describes the sixth seal. Here's what he says, Matthew 24, 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Matthew 24, 29. Listen to Revelation 6, 12 about the sixth seal. Listen to this. I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black. Matthew, it was darkened as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. This is the sixth seal. 
And then Jesus said, then I will appear and I will gather my elect from the four winds and from the four ends of the earth and I will gather them all to myself. Revelation 6 and the sixth seal says, the people on earth say, hide us. Hide us from the presence of the one that is on the throne. It is the time of his wrath has come. I'm like, well, I don't see any rapture there. I'll keep reading. Because even though we divided up chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 7 is part of the sixth seal. And then during the sixth seal, John sees a group of people appear before the throne of God like the sands of the sea of every tribe, every nation. And he asks the question, who are these that, that, who are these that are standing before me? And the angel says, these are the ones that have come out of the tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. That's us. That's the rapture. I, I think it's encouraging that God calls this present time a time of tribulation. Has anybody else felt the weight of it? It just feels a little right to call this time a time of tribulation. These seals are all open. We see them. You turn on the news and you've got all five seals happening before you all the time. And how many have asked the question, Lord, how much longer? How much longer? We, my, oh my, I'm in China. <sighs> Do you know that when we went to China, the, I got an email that said, by the way, bring a lot of sweaters. The government doesn't turn the heat on until November 15th. Could you imagine being in a country where you, do, where you don't get to turn the heat on? Then I'm in the airport. Do you know what the, the, they've got these signs on the benches in the airport. They're in China, they're in Mandarin, and they're in English. And here's what it says. Please keep quiet in public. Are you kidding me? You're going to tell me whether I can talk or not? Anyway, um, how much longer, Lord? How much longer? Jesus is coming back in the sky. He's gathering us to himself. And there is a time of wrath that is going to come on this world. Just like after Noah got on the ark, a flood of judgment came. As Lot came out of the city, a flood of judgment came. But during the sixth seal, something amazing happens. I'm reading from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Actually, John quotes this in Revelation 1. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. During the sixth seal, there is a massive Jewish revival when Jesus comes back. John says 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from every tribe are sealed. These all become witnesses during the time of judgment. Revelation 14 um, tells us that these 144,000 that have been purchased by God follow the Lamb wherever He goes. He says, and I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven. This is Revelation 14. Having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, 
Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. They are witnesses of the gospel. They join the two witnesses of Revelation 11. They are given, they are ordained witnesses of God to preach for the hour of judgment, which is 1260 days, 42 months, um, three and a half years. The hour of judgment, they, God gives witness and actually many, many people get saved during this time. Many people turn to Christ. Many reject what is going to happen on the earth. And God has mercy and remembers mercy even in his wrath. So point seven, the coming hour of judgment and the seventh seal. Jesus made this promise to the church. This is Revelation 3, 10, and 11. Hopefully we're going to have it up here too, Revelation 3, 10, and 11. No, we're not going to have it. (laughs) Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The promise to believers that stay awake, that endure patiently, that persevere in this time, the promise is this, that you, we will be kept from the hour of trouble. It's, the, word, the Greek word is not you will be kept in the trouble. Those that are sealed are going to be kept. The Jews that are sealed are going to be kept in the trouble. But those who keep the word of his perseverance are going to be kept from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth. That is his promise to faithful believers. Before we look at the seventh seal, I want to establish that the hour of judgment lasts for 1260 days or 42 months. When the beast reappears, he has 10 horns. But these 10 horns are not successive kings. They are concurrent. They're all at the same time. I'm reading from Revelation 17, 12. The 10 horns you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. So they're going to be ruling with the beast for one hour. Revelation 13 establishes how long that hour is. Then I saw a beast coming out of the sea, having ten horns, and on his horns were ten crowns, and on his heads were blasphemous names. There was one given to him, there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. So the ten kings are going to rule during this hour of judgment with the beast and and under the beast for 42 months, three and a half years, or 1260 days. So that's the whole hour of judgment. But we don't go into the day of the Lord until the seventh seal is broken. During the sixth seal, they say the wrath of the Lamb has come. The wrath is going to start immediately. So then we have the seventh seal. 
This is, this is really important because this is, this is where you're going to disagree with me. Here's the seventh seal. When the seventh seal is broken, it says this. Sci- heaven is silent for a half hour. There is silence in heaven for a half hour. This is, this is one of the things that has to happen before the day of the Lord can come. There has to be a half hour of silence in heaven. What on earth does that mean? I'm going to tell you. I believe that the first half hour of this hour of trial is God giving people a chance to see what earth would be like if heaven was silent. If hell got to do whatever they wanted to do. The Bible says that at this time, during the seventh seal, Satan is kicked out of heaven once and for all. Right now, he still has access. He still accuses the brothers before the throne. But there's a war in heaven. Michael kicks him out. And he knows his time is short. And then it says, Revelation 12 says, he knows how long it is. Time, times, and half a time, which is another way to say three and a half years. He has got, he's kicked out of heaven, and he's got three and a half years. It also says at this time, the beast is released from the abyss. And he knows how long he has. He's got... 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years. The beast comes up, Satan is kicked down, and we have hell on earth with heaven doing nothing for a half hour. That half hour is half of the three and a half years. During that time, we have Revelation 13. We've got an antichrist. We've got a false prophet. We've got miracles being done. We've got um, statues that can speak that are set up and, and worship is demanded and there's the mark of the beast. You can't buy or sell unless you have the mark and it's 666 is the mark of the name and there is a surveillance. This is a control situation and all those that became Christians after the sixth seal and those evangelists went out, the Jewish evangelists went out and the two witnesses, they're in a time of tremendous distress and suffering because hell is free to, it it says it in Revelation 13, God gave the Antichrist authority over the saints. And so it's just bad. It's just a bad time to be alive. It's a devastating time. The way you get saved from it is by giving your life. Half, a half hour of silence in heaven where hell does whatever it wants. That's the seventh seal. That's Mankind is going to see, mankind that has been so offended with God, so offended that God doesn't do more and God doesn't intervene, they're going to see what, ha- what this world would look like if hell got to do whatever it wanted to do a half hour. And that's the seventh seal. None of those are the day of the Lord. Even though this is the beginning of the wrath of God, it is the passive wrath of God. It's very much like um, the destruction of Jerusalem was the passive wrath. God wasn't actively doing something. God used the Roman army to bring wrath and judgment against the Jewish people. Now we have that half hour is done, that seventh, and now it is time for the day of the Lord. 
This is God coming into history to set up his kingdom. This is God. This is heaven awakening and saying, enough. You open up and it starts with judgment. It starts with trumpet judgments. There are seven trumpets and now we've got fireballs falling from heaven. We've got fish dying. We've got people dying. We've got demonic local. We, all of a sudden, heaven is coming in and all of a sudden, the Antichrist and his little kingdom is not having fun anymore. Seven, there's seven trumpet judgment followed by seven bowl judgments. And uh, once again, still opportunities for people to get saved. And then part of the day of the Lord, of course, is the return of Christ with the church. The significance of the day of the Lord is in that, in that day, Isaiah 2.17, God alone is going to be exalted. The day of the Lord is not a day where the Antichrist is exalted. It's a day that Jesus alone is exalted. When Jesus comes back to earth with us, the beast is cast into the lake of fire forever. Satan is tied up for a thousand years. Um, the first time he appeared in Vespasian during the Roman Empire, the second time he will appear in the future Antichrist and lead a ten-nation empire before being judged forever. All right, let's look at the slideshow. Is anybody ready for a slideshow? Yeah. Here we go. Slide number one, the seven seals. Let's talk about the seven seals. Boom. Next slide. See how cool this is? Okay. So the lamb that was slain is the only one that can open the seals. I maintain that he opened all five of them in the first century before the fall of Jerusalem. They were already opened. We're still living, and they're all open right now, and they will be until, until the, the day of the Lord comes. The sixth seal is the rapture. It's been imminent since the destruction of the temple. Jesus said in his generation that his coming would be right at the door. And then the seventh seal is the beginning of judgment. It, 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 it features silence in heaven for the first half hour of the hour of judgment. Boom. Let's move on to second slide. The beast. It's a very important part of my position. Let's move on. Who was, now is not. I maintain that he was. Uh, he was in Vespasian. He now is not. He, and only meaning that he's not actor now. He's locked up in the abyss. And that he will be. He will be released again. He will possess the future Antichrist. That even as Jesus came twice and the prophets did not foresee Jesus coming twice, I think the beast actually appears twice in the same way. One more way that he is an imitation Christ. Third, third slide. The hour of judgment. Can be split into two halves. The first is during the seventh seal. Heaven is silent. It's passive judgment. The first hour is God's passive wrath where he allows things to happen, allows hell to do what it wants to do. The second half is the beginning of the day of the Lord, uh, the trumpets and the bowls. The rapture happens before any of it because the church is being saved from the hour of trial. Next, sixth seal. Father alone knows when the rapture will happen. 
The father, they said, when is this gonna happen? Is this the time you're gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know signs or times that the father has set by his, his own, his own uh, will. Then the rapture comes. During the sixth seal, we have a revival in Israel. We have evangelism in advance of the hour of judgment. Boom, let's move on. Seventh seal, half hour of silence in heaven. Here we go. Satan is cast down, beast comes up, the first half hour is, and it says about a half hour, so don't hold me to this, but 21 months, 630 days, the reign of terror begins, boom, the day of the Lord, trumpets followed by bowls, and then Jesus returning is all part of the day of the Lord. Actually, the millennial kingdom is part of the day of the Lord as well, so that's just kind of a very quick overview. Number nine, and we're going to have a little break before we do questions and answers. Um, I want to give you the implications. You know what? Let's take the break right now. Let's have a two-minute break. I'll give you the implications of my position, and then we'll open it up for questions and answers. So everybody stand. If you've got to go to the bathroom or get a drink, if you don't want to come back, I understand. Two minutes. <laughs> two minutes, we'll, we'll kick back up. Okay. All right, two minutes is up. Hey guys, we've got a little nursery issue going. Um, number 273, if your child is 273, uh, we need you to go down and check on 273. Is some, is somebody got 270? It's Jules and Jackie. We need some help with those children. Oh, we got it. It's covered. Good, great. Okay. Uh, I want to just give you some implications of my position, and then we'll open it up for questions or comments. The first implication is division, if not held with humility. Like any position you have, guys, this is a non-essential. The essential is Jesus coming, is coming back, and we need to be ready. Honestly, if you talk to 10 people about the end times, you're going to have 10 different slants on it. Especially people that have studied it and are really into it. You'd think we'd all come to the same conclusion. Trust me, we don't. And you just don't, you just don't be mean about it. Just, it's okay to have an opinion, but hold it loosely. It doesn't need to work out exactly how you think. This is... A.W. Tozer said, he told the, the parable of the guy that was coming back from World War II and he had sent a, a wire ahead to his family saying, I'm, I'm, I'm coming back. And, and he was so excited about coming. Um, and, but when he got there, he found his family in a fight because some thought he was coming by bus, other thought he was coming by train, some thought he was coming at night, some thought he was going in the morning. And, and they're arguing about how he's coming and dad is at the door and his family isn't there to meet him because they're fighting. And this is not stuff to fight about. This isn't stuff to be upset about. This is, it's fine to have an opinion. Um, don't let... Um, the enemy use in any way this stuff to divide you. I like to celebrate how like my opinion is and find out what is similar to other positions. For instance, the pre-tribulation position, which is, you know, Hal Lindsey, Late Great Planet Earth, the Left Behind books, 
Their big thing is imminence, that Jesus could come at any time. Well, I believe that now. Let's, let's rejoice in that. Let's celebrate that. Yep, the next thing that's happening is, is Jesus coming back, and let's just celebrate that. Um, Mike Bickle, of course, you guys know I, I track with Kansas City House of Prayer. I love the emphasis on the bridal identity, and uh, Mike Bickle is post-trib. Mike Bickle's got us going through everything. It's going to be horrible. Uh, we're there the whole time. Um, what, what, that doesn't seem right. Well, let me tell you what's coming out of Kansas City. He's teaching young people how to be unoffended lovers of Jesus. That whatever happens in their life, whatever happens in the future, this is just a test and Jesus wants us to love him unconditionally and he's raising up a whole general, I'll, I'll be down at one thing. I love it. I love the message, even though I don't agree with his end time stuff. I agree with un, being unoffended lovers and being passionate worshipers and being fully engaged. And, and I love what's happening down there. So there's so much to agree with. Why focus on the one thing that you don't agree with? Um, this position shares the call to be fearless with the kingdom now people and the pan-millennial people. There's a whole group of people that think it's all happening right now. This is the time for the kingdom. Kingdom is advancing, and we need to focus on the good things that God is doing, and, and who cares how it works out? I know one of my favorite quotes from Bill Johnson is this. Our destiny is heaven, but our mission is to bring heaven to earth. And, and we need to be about this Mission, and we are not called to be hiding in churches because the end is near. We are called to be out there fearlessly believing God for great things to happen in our day. Well, I certainly share that with, with those people, even though I don't track with their end time stuff because there really is no, no end time stuff to track with. They just don't really have that much of an opinion. Um, so there's, there's stuff to agree with if you look hard enough in the body of Christ, and why not celebrate what we agree on instead of be angry at what we disagree on? Second implication of my position, Israel will be saved, not judged, in the events after the rapture. This is is really going to go against the grain of what a lot of people think. The whole idea of there being a rebuilt Jewish temple, the the reason why people believe the Jewish temple has to be rebuilt, and of course I was one of these guys, is so that the Jews can be judged again. For Daniel's 70th seven to happen, if that's still in the future, there has to be a temple. How How can the sacrifices cease if they don't start again? And so the whole, this whole premise of a rebuilt Jewish temple is all around God is going to judge the Jews again for rejecting Christ. Guys, the judgment on the Jews is done. Jesus said it was done. Jesus said all of the wrath that's coming on this generation is going to be fulfilled with the destruction of the temple. Jesus, when Jesus comes back, it's not to judge the Jews. It's to save the Jews. 
What's coming for the Jews is a massive revival, a massive softening, not one more judgment from God. Implications of my... Oh, and just a thought. You know, everybody laments that the Dome of the Rock is on the Temple Mount, so they can't rebuild the, Jerusalem, the, the Temple again. Has anybody thought that maybe it's God's gift that the, that, the, that the Dome of the Rock is on the Temple Mount so that they can't build the Jewish Temple again? <laughs> Guys, God's got a new system of saving people, and it's not the Old Testament sacrifices. That's already been fulfilled. That's over. We're in a new day. Have you ever thought that maybe it's God's sovereign plan to have the Dome of the Rock there so that the Jewish temple can't be rebuilt? Don't think about it. (laughs) Third implication. We are not looking for signs. We're looking for Jesus and falling more in love with him and each other as we come in to the bridal identity. People have made a lot of, I've had a lot of ministry and sold a lot of books and done a lot about the signs of the times. And vigilant Christians are looking for the signs. And did you see what happened yesterday? And did you see what happened here? And did you see what happened here? And the, the end is near because of these signs that are happening and everything means something. And, and Jesus said, listen, He said to the first generation, you need to look for the signs because you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to leave Jerusalem. You're going to have to book. This is what's going to happen. It happened exactly like he said, and they did exactly what he told them to do, and they were all saved because of it. And here's what he said about the second rescue and judgment event. There's no signs. It's going to be like the days of Noah. People are going to be eating, drinking, marrying it. They're, they're not going to know what's happened. He says, you need to be careful. You need to watch because your Lord is coming back at an hour. You don't think he's going to come. You're not going to figure it out. Now, that doesn't mean that his coming is going to be unexpected for believers. Paul says that day... For those of you living in life, for those of you who are, are, are following Jesus, that day will not be a surprise because you're looking for it. You're living for it. Every day is a possible day that the Lord will come back. When he comes back, that's not a surprise. That's a fulfillment of everything I've lived for. So the reason why believers are not surprised is not because they figured it out. It's because they're always ready. So we don't have to spend our energy trying to figure out the signs. Here's what Jesus said to his disciples. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Then the disciples gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority. It's not for you to figure it out. And then he gives them what it is theirs. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. And you just keep doing that 
you just keep doing that until I return. Oh, it's going to be really hard for you because there's going to be false Christ. There's going to be false religion everywhere. There's going to be wars and rumors of war. There's going to be famines, earthquakes, plagues all over the place. There's going to be persecution. People are going to be killed. And this is the atmosphere that you're going to preach the gospel in. And you preach. And if you're brought before any of those people, you don't fear. The Holy Spirit will teach you what to say. Because this is the hour of my salvation in the midst of trouble. That is how God has ordained it. We're not looking for signs, but we are looking for Jesus. And we're falling more and more in love with him. And this whole thing about the bridal identity, I believe, I believe worship is going to prepare the bride for the second coming. I believe we're going to fall more and more in love. We're going to know who we are as favored sons. We're going to be obedient servants, but we're going to be the bride together that is crazy in love with Jesus. I I, I just believe it. I believe the Holy Spirit is stirring passion. The very last verses of Revelation 22 say this, the Spirit and the bride say come. You know what the secret to Disney movies is? A beautiful bride. Have you ever noticed that all the Disney movies are around the same thing? We're all captivated by the beautiful bride, the beautiful love story. The gospel is simply the fairy tale that's true. Jesus is making a beautiful bride. Not brides, one bride. It's us together are the bride, and that's why unity is so important in this. Uh, and I've kind of already said this one. We should, fourth implication, we should expect growing darkness as the tares grow. We should be braced for tribulations. The five seals are open, but we won't face God's wrath, including his passive wrath in releasing the Antichrist. So we've got a little good news there and a little bad news. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It'll probably get more difficult, frankly, if Jesus tarries. I think anybody that's looking at America knows there could be some really bad times ahead for America. Unless there's a revival. And I'm, I'm all in for revival, guys. I believe God is not done with America. I believe for a revival for America if Jesus tarries. I, I, I believe it with all my heart. And I, I, he's spoken it in so many ways, not only to the larger body of Christ, but to us and to City Church. And there are promises over this church that I'm astonished by. And if, it, if, it was, if they were based on how good we are, I wouldn't believe them. But they're based on how good he is, how generous he is, how able he is to do what he promises. And it fills me with hope. Um, but I, re- I really believe we are, we are not going to be there for Antichrist. We're not going to be there for 666. We're not going to be in the worldwide thing where the, the Antichrist has authority over the saints. I don't believe that's us. I believe we are saved from the hour of trial that is coming on the face of the earth if we will persevere with Jesus in this time. And I just, that's one of the reasons why I even had this night is because, I mean, are you kidding me, Lord? I've got another position and I'm going to tell the whole church that I've changed my position again. Yeah, you are. <laughs> why? Because you deserve it. You deserve it. If you heard the guillotine message, you deserve to hear this one. I'm sorry. <laughs> But this is, I'm not going to be making a big deal about this. This is just a one-timer. If you want the notes of tonight, somebody said, could I, could I get the notes? Just email me, tflaherty at citychurchonline.org. You email me, I will just, it's one button, and I'll send you all the notes, and you'll have everything that I have. Is that fair? 
All right, and then from this morning, the implications. We need to stay awake. And I just want to read a different passage than I did this morning. This is Jesus in Luke 21. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. Now keep in mind, he's saying this to his disciples. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. It's not in vogue to be careful. But we need to be careful. We need to say yes to God. We need to be passionate worshipers. But we also need to say no to sin. We need to say no to the anxieties and worldliness and all those things that that can just crowd out the, the things of God. And we just need to stay awake. And you know, it's not that hard to stay awake. But it takes something every day to stay awake. And just make it your goal. I've made it my goal. Lord, I want to be awake when you come. I don't want to get trapped in that day. I don't want to get trapped in worldliness. I don't want to get trapped in what's going on down here in my life down here and my dream down here and everything is down here. I, hey, I'm, I want to be active down here. I want to go for God down here. I want to see whatever, the church grow. Yeah, that's great. But this, I'm, I don't want my whole identity wrapped up in it. I want to be one of the five wise virgins. I want to trim my wick every day. Guys, Christianity, here's the difficult thing about Christianity. You got to do it every day. Never say that Christianity is the hard way. It is, Jesus said it's the hard way. No, he did not say it's the hard way. He said it's the narrow way. It's easy to get off. Christianity is actually the easy way to live in this world. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. God will carry all your troubles. You just carry God. It's narrow. It's one person wide. It's a relationship with Jesus that we need to maintain. And it's easy to get off. It's easy to get off in worldliness. It's easy to get off in legalism and, and religion. And we, just, we need to stay alive in Jesus. We need to stay filled with oil. We need, we need to have that joy of the Lord that is our strength. And that just means every day you need to trim your wick. That just means you cut off what burned yesterday. Whether it was good or bad, cut it off. Cut it off. It's gone. If there's a reward there, you'll get it in heaven. But don't think about it now. Cut it off and then oil up again. Holy Spirit, come on. Let's do this today. God, you love me. Jesus, you're here. I I, I need to walk with you today. And then we'll be ready. All right, there we go. Let's open it up. Questions and comments. Here we go. This, man, this young man has been waiting for a while. <laughs> oh. I have two questions, but I only ask one. Just to be Thank clear. you. <laughs> I have a feeling these are going to be hard questions, so one is better than two. Go ahead. Okay. Um, Jesus said that the gospel will be preached to all the nations before he comes, and he's coming for people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Yep. And we know that there are some tribes in which no one outside of that tribe knows their language, 
Therefore, the gospel has not been preached to them. So in that in my mind, I have difficulty with the concept of the imminent return. Not knowing we return, I have no problem with that. Because even when those last tribe is reached, we still don't know when he's going to actually come. Okay? So I'm wondering how that fits in with this whole concept of how could we talk about the imminent return of Christ when we know that he has purposely sent us to do the work of the ministry so that people will be able to be part of that church. Okay, that's good. So not only am I saying that that whole idea has already been fulfilled, but I'm saying it was fulfilled in the first century. Jesus said back then in Mark 13 that this gospel is going to be preached to the whole world. Well, in Paul's ministry, he writes to the Thessalonians, he says, the gospel has gone out to the entire world. Your testimony has gone out. The gospel has been preached. And so what what does it mean that the gospel is preached to the whole world? Only God knows what that is. Now, do we need to go to those tribes? Absolutely. I am very, these are some things that I'm very excited about for the future of City Church. We've got one missionary in Africa. He is sending African churches that can reach unreached groups in Africa. He's partnering them up to go in there. And then he's taking American churches, not to go directly to the unreached group, but to partner with these African churches that are going to the unreached people groups. We're going to be part of that. You know, we're, we're within five years of paying off our debt here. You know what our dad, you know how much we pay a month for our, for our building? $32,000 a month. Do you know how much good we could do with $32,000 a month? Do you, I'm, I'm excited about our involvement in reaching every tribe, every nation, and what the future has for us. But as far as did that get fulfilled in the first century, we have only the words of Paul saying the gospel has gone out to the whole world. And so... In some sense, it has gone out. All right. Um, comment and a question. Great. Okay. So I, before, before we came tonight, I thought, what do I know about Revelation? Well, it all works out. <laughs> there are sheep and there are goats. Jesus will return. Be ready. Don't receive the mark of the beast. If I, I guess you would say if, if that's going to be a temptation. Endure to the end, and it'll get worse before it gets better. Now my question. Um, so I thought, because a lot of what you said with the, the five seals being opened appears to have be something that occurred in, in the past as John was given the revelation because he was given the revelation, I think right. you said, in 95. Right. So he's describing stuff that happened in like 70. Yep. And in uh, Revelation 4.1, it says, Right therefore what you have seen... Um, I'm sorry, wrong, wrong verse. <laughs> he says... Uh, where'd it go? Oh, yeah. Come up here, I will show you what must play, take place after this. Right. So I'm thinking, well, if it takes place after 95, how could it have happened before 95? Correct. Correct. And that's why most, most the futurists believe this is all future, okay? Here's, here's why I believe that they're already open. Two reasons. One, all prophetic literature is obscure. That is part of the genre. It is hidden. 
it is hidden. If that's all you have, then it's your guess and my guess are the, are the same. But if there's another place where these same things are spoken about very clearly and very openly, the clear interprets the obscure, not the other way around. And it just happens that Jesus said in all three synoptic gospels, he gave those exact things that happened in those seals. And he said they were going to happen in his generation. They, they were going to happen before the fall of Jerusalem. And so boom, 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 five seals. Jesus said they're going to be open. These are the signs that are going to lead up. Then you have, not only that, then you have the evidence of 2,000 years. These, have, these are clearly opened. These things are all still happening today. Now, as far as the after, just because they're already opened does not mean that what he saw with the man on the white horse, that could very well be the future Antichrist. It could be an after thing. Just because it's already open doesn't mean that everything that he saw happening has already happened before 95 AD. It's some of them could still be happening because those seals are already open. So just because it says, just because they're already open doesn't mean that the full fulfillment of them isn't going to happen in the future. So it could still be after. Does that make sense? Thank you. Hi, Tom. So your position is that Matthew 24, basically hap- a lot of the prophecies happen from 66 to 73 AD. Correct. And one problem I have with it is this verse, Matthew 24, 21 through 22, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And I just think about um, some of the... so. For that to be true, then that would mean that those days would be harder than the seventh seal and revelation, some of the other things Thank that you. have happened in Jewish history. And I guess, right. can you speak to that? Good. Yes. Let's, let's speak about it. First, let's talk about uh, those days being shortened for the sake of the elect. Okay? So here's what happened. They are, they are on a mandate to wipe out the Jews, okay? A lot of the Jews have become Christians and have fled to Pella, okay? If the war goes on past the seven years, they will literally go into every nation and wipe out every Jew. For the sake of the elect, those days were shortened. And so there was a limit on how much death would happen in that time. If the beast is not restrained at that time, then hell will go until everybody dies. Now, as far as that time being worse than any other time, how can you say that that time is worse than the Holocaust? Well, for a couple of reasons, it it was. The way that people died, they they were trapped in a siege. They were crucified. They cannibalized each other. They They were starved. It was, it was over, it was granted much shorter, but the way they died was so horrific. The percentage of Jews that died was greater than the percentage that died in the Holocaust because there were so many more Jews by the time of the Holocaust. So if you use the measure of the horror of how they died, 
you could say that there's been nothing like this. Um, and the, the three writers of that time, once again, were all hired by Vespasian, and they probably made it seem less worse than it actually was. So I, I no, but it's not going to be worse than after the rapture. But the, the, after the rapture, the elect are gone. He's talking about what is allowed to happen when the elect are on planet Earth. And once we're gone, there's going to be not just a region-wide judgment on the Jewish people, it's going to be a worldwide judgment. The Jews have already been judged for rejecting Christ. Now the whole world is going to be judged for rejecting Christ. And it will be significantly worse than what happened in the first century. But the elect are not there at that time. So that's my... That, these are great. And, and I'm not... Honestly, I'm not trying to convince you of my position. I'm happy to, to disagree, and these are great points. I'm just telling you what my position is. So, all right. Back here. Jim. Pastor, my question is about Israel. Of course, they became a nation in, or a state in 1948, and Jerusalem was taken over completely by the Jews in 1948. My question is, how does this fit in with your end times beliefs and, and activities? Okay. Is that a fair question? Very, oh, very good. Um, we all uh, the prophet said that Israel was going to be regathered and Israel was going to be restored and that this was on God's heart and um, Jesus himself when he says uh, that, that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed he says until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled so Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour but he knows there's a delay and he knows the current window is for Gentiles but the Jews have always been on God's heart and I would say that the regathering of the Jews is a sign that was not promised to us that we had to see before Christ could come back but it nevertheless is a sign that we're getting closer so in other words Jesus could have come back and then the Jews have been regathered. But the fact that it's happened before he's come back, I would take that as, hey, we're seeing stuff. Here's what we know about the, about the coming, second coming. We're closer than we've ever been. And, and, and of course, his coming, when we come back with him, he restores Israel to its place. And just the whole... Acts 1, 6, and 7, and there's a, a time called the millennial reign, and that's a whole other message. But So Israel is on God's heart. So looking at the five seals, I get the concept of that it's been open for the last 2,000 years. It seems like, though, if you take famine in particular, that, yeah, there's been a lot of famine over the last 2,000 years. There's a lot now. But there was certainly plenty of famine before 0 AD or, or 60 or 70 AD. Yep. Doesn't that make it sort of not unique, I guess, in a sense? So the one unique thing in these, well, there's a couple of unique things. One is there's going to be false Christ. After the true Christ comes, there's going to be false Christ. And that was, that was new. Then his point on the wars and the famines and these things is they're going to be, they're going to happen like birth pains. And they're going to be in an increasing measure before the fall of Jerusalem, which all happened. They, they were increasing. All of those signs were increasing. Now, many today think they're going to increase again. 
with the second coming and, and that we'll see those things again and we very well might and we might not, but uh, I will absolutely grant that those things were happening before. But I think what Jesus is saying, because the Jewish idea was that when the Messiah comes, the kingdom of God will come and everything will become right on this earth. That, that we were in darkness and now we're going to be in light because Messiah is here. And Jesus said to his disciples, that's not how it's going to be. The kingdom is coming in seed form and there's going to be tares growing alongside the wheat. There's going to be darkness with light. It's all going to be a mess. And the gospel is not going to take over. It's going to be preached within very difficult circumstances. And so um, that's what I've got for you. Yeah, wish I had more. I have an easy one. <laughs> um, after the thousand years, why is Satan released again? Okay, so during the millennium, um, people are not going to die during the millennium. The curse is coming off the earth. The lion will lay with the lamb. We'll see what this place was originally supposed to be. And, but the people that came through the, the hour of trial that got saved during that time, they can still have kids, and they're going to reproduce. And this earth is going to be filled with people that have never been tested. They're going to be in... A beautiful, Jesus will be on this earth. It will be sight, not faith. It will be a beautiful earth. It will, people will keep the laws. It will be just as God intended, but they still have a sin nature that has not been tested. Now, they will be warned. There's going to be a time when Satan's going to be released, but they will be tested. And if you read Revelation 20, it's, they, a lot of them don't pass that test. A lot, when he's re-released, they gather against him, and even though they were outwardly obedient, worshiping inwardly, they were rebelling and hating, and there's one last war, and it's not much of a war. They gather around Jerusalem, and fire comes from heaven and takes them out. There's, there is no war. It's just, it's over. But that does happen. They're going to be tested in a different way than we were. Any other questions? We've got six minutes left. Okay, I'll keep it down to one question. Beautiful. I'm wondering if I have been misled by who wrote the book of Revelation. Was that John, the disciple that was brother yep. of Jesus? Yep. The Apostle John. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. He... Oh, not the brother of Jesus. He, he's, he's the brother of of James, um, he was the youngest disciple. He was the one that laid on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. He was one of the inner circle apostles. He is the one that wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He wrote the Gospel of John. And then all the early fathers say he outlived all the rest of them. Jesus said that he, that he might not, he wouldn't die the same way the other ones said. He's the only one that was not martyred, even though they tried to boil him in oil. But that's the John. Yeah. There was a brother, and that's James. James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he wrote uh, the, the letter of James. It's not James the apostle, it's James the Lord's brother. Yeah. Bob? Yeah, you were talking on about Luke 21, I think, and yep. uh, the, about the signs in the heavens. Yep. And that we're not really looking for the signs in the heavens, but... 
Jesus said, says that there's, Jesus says, here's what it's going to look like when I come back. He says, don't, don't be thinking there's some hidden Messiah here and hidden there. It's going to be like lightning from one side of the heaven. You will not miss this. The, the moon is going to turn to blood. The sun is going to be darkened. There's going to be a shaking, an earthquake. The wind is going to blow. You, you won't miss this. So don't, don't pay attention to there's a Messiah under this door and under that thing and and this secret secret thing happened. The sign of his return is going to be worldwide. And I know you don't have time to go into probably this, but there's been a dozen, half a dozen to over, probably closer to a dozen signs in the past three years in the heavens. There's four blood oh, moons. right, 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 right. I, I know all about the blood moons, and I've read about the blood moons. And guys, and I love the people that write these books. And frankly, I encourage, I encourage anything on the end times because I think it helps us to become otherworldly. But a lot of these things get us into conspiracy. And Christians, guys, let's stay out of conspiracy. Let's stay in simple devotion to Christ. Let's walk with him. Let's love him. And let's not try to figure out everything. Um, it's, it's, it's just, it's not, it's not going to be like that. Raleigh. And then Dennis right Mine's going to see, okay, yep. I'm, peek, I'm peeking at an obscure point, but my, sign, my small scientific background is asking questions. It says the sky, the sun will be darkened. The moon will turn to blood. I get those two, two things. It says the stars are going to fall from heaven like figs. If one star fell on earth, it would crush it because it's bigger than the earth. How is, what is it saying in that verse? It's a small point, but my mind is curious. Since okay, got and time. Raleigh, we're going to go right behind you, but let me, let me answer that. Um, let me give you the scientific answer. I don't know what it means. <laughs> uh, we, we understand a blood moon. We understand the sun can be darkened. We also understand shooting stars, so who knows? It's, it's just going to be, there's going to be a heavenly display of some sort, and it's going to be, people are going to know something's happening. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Dennis. In um, 2 Thessalonians 2, it talks about the restrainer being removed. Yep. <laughs> before the lawlessness one. Lawless one. All right, I will end with this one. Um, okay. So I have a whole section on 2 Thessalonians 2 because this is one of the puzzle pieces. What you have to realize that is Paul, Paul writes 2 Thessalonians in about 55 AD. So both rescue and judgment events are in his future, okay? So he says about the gathering of us to the Lord Jesus, about that gathering, don't let anyone disturb you and say that it's already happened. It's not imminent. It's not imminent right now. Other things have to happen first. First, because he gives the same order that Jesus gave. First, the man of sin has to appear. He's going to put up the abomination in the temple, call himself God, that all happened. Then he said there's going to be this uh, falling away. The word is apostia, and Apostia is translated departure in some places. Paul could be talking about 
the backsliding that will happen when uh, Nero persecuted, because there was backsliding and people did betray their brothers and their, but he could also be just using it as departure because Jesus said, there's going, the man of sin's going to appear and there's going to be a departure out of Jerusalem. That's the apostia. And then he says, um, the beast will appear, he'll do signs and wonders, and he'll be destroyed at the coming of Jesus. And so Paul is not seeing two comings of the beast, even though I believe there are two. He, he doesn't have the benefit that John has of one has already been fulfilled and another's coming, and he's just looking at the future. As far as what the restrainer is, I actually think he says it right there. He says that, that the beast will appear at the kairos, at the proper time. The kairos is a restrainer. God's timing restrains things. Nothing can happen until God allows it to happen. And I think the restrainer, because it's called an it and it's called he, I think the restrainer is God and I think it is kairos, the, the timing of God. He cannot be released until God releases him. And Jesus says when he is released, it's, it, he's released by God because people refuse to love the truth. They refuse to love the truth, so God gives them over to deception. God doesn't make them be deceived. He gives them what they wanted. And that's why it's so important for us to love the truth, even if it's painful, even if it's hard, even if we don't want to hear it. Please fall in love with the truth. Want the truth. Always want. The truth saves us. The truth cleans us. The truth will keep us awake. And, uh, and that's God's plan. So, good question. All right, let's stand and we'll have a prayer and we'll, we'll call it a night. Lord, thank you for these wonderful, wonderful people for a chance to share my opinion. It seems so unfair that I get to share my opinion and everybody else has to listen to it. But God, we, uh, we just trust that this has been done in a spirit of unity and that even if we have different opinions about things, different positions and verses, that, that we will hold them loosely and unify around Jesus, around you are coming and we need to be ready. And we are so in agreement with all of that. Father, thank you for a chance to talk together and be a family. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, thanks so much for coming.